0: Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro and Boston. Today's topic is alimony in Massachusetts, the basics. Alimony is a word we all have heard, and most know that it arises in the context of a divorce. But what exactly is alimony, and how does it work? In this first of our two-episode series on alimony, we'll dive into the basics of the alimony laws in Massachusetts, including the various types of alimony, how alimony is calculated, and how recent tax law changes have drastically impacted the alimony laws. With me today is Myrick O'Connell family law attorney Tim Brockler. Welcome back to On Air with Myrick O'Connell, Tim.
1: Thanks so much, Howard. It's great to be back with you.
0: Well, thanks. So uh, let's start off with this. Can you give us a little introduction into what alimony actually is and the legal basis for it in Massachusetts?
1: Sure. So alimony at its most basic level is financial support that is paid by one spouse to the other when there's a divorce. And going back to almost the beginning of the commonwealth uh, since the late 1700s, our statutes have uh, authorized our courts to provide for alimony awards. For a very long time, alimony was Uh, of course, considered in a very paternalistic way. You know, the husband has the marital obligation to support his wife, notwithstanding a divorce, uh, was the thinking. Uh, Up until about 1974, uh, this, this sort of gender bias was written right into the law, where alimony was for a wife, specifically, and a husband was only limited to awards in, the nature of alimony. So, you know, we'd never want to actually call out a man for receiving alimony back then. In 1974, the divorce laws were completely overhauled, including those pertaining to alimony. And the statute became gender neutral at that time with respect to spousal support. And these changes to the divorce laws, they basically lumped Uh, the concept of alimony together with property division. And property division, that's of course the issue of how you're dividing assets uh, in a divorce. The 1974 statute said that courts can order alimony and equitably divide property based on consideration of a number of factors that uh, were laid out in the statute. And those factors include things like the length of the marriage, income of the parties, the parties' needs, their ability to work, so on. There were no guidelines, though, in the statute about how much alimony is appropriate, how long it should be paid for, what the standards might be to modify the alimony down the road after an initial award, and what what the people who designed the 1974 statute thought was, well, we'll let the judges have the discretion to, to fashion alimony awards based on considering all of these facts and the circumstances of each case. And so what you really had was a blank canvas that this law set up where over the years the courts tried to shape how alimony should look in certain circumstances. But really what it was was a vague statute that lent itself to many different interpretations by lawyers as well as judges. You know, you had judges coming up with their own formulas for calculating alimony. Um, there uh, arose disputes about whether judges could order alimony for a finite time. Uh, there was just a lot of issues uh, with this statute and a lot of uncertainty. Also uh, around um 2019 and 2010, you also saw some cases come through the courts that, uh, for whatever reason, had these very sensational facts that then turned into Boston Globe articles. For instance, um, one was, you know, a couple married for five years in their 20s with the ex-husband still paying alimony 15 years later or um, an elderly alimony payer that was well over the social security retirement age and retired from work and unable to end his alimony obligation. So things like that, there was suddenly this big spotlight on the alimony law and and how do we fix it? And so what came about as a result of all of this and, and the sort of calm culmination of of all of these issues with the old statute was a number of groups and individuals came together and and rewrote the alimony law and what came out of that is what we have now uh, and that's called the alimony reform act and that's what has been in effect um, in the alimony laws here
0: since 2012. Now, how did the Alimony Reform Act change the law with regard to alimony?
1: So the broad idea of the Reform Act was that it brought in more specificity and more predictability to guide the courts in awarding alimony. The The, the new law established four specific types of alimony that were appropriate in different cases. There are guidelines now for the amount and the maximum duration uh, for each type of alimony to be paid. The law requires specifically that alimony terminates on certain events, such as when the recipient remarries or when the payor reaches full Social Security retirement age. Um, And then there are also new rules about alimony uh, potentially being suspended or reduced or terminated if a recipient uh, cohabitates with a new partner following the divorce. And despite all these much more specific guidelines for alimony, what, what the Alimony Reform Act still leaves in place is the courts with some of that discretion to still be able to tailor alimony awards to the circumstances of each case, which is good. Um, and, and, and you want that to an extent. And the, the, the statute just gives the courts a little bit more guidance uh, to do that than they had under the prior laws.
0: Can you walk us through, Tim, the four different types of alimony you mentioned?
1: Uh, sure. So so I'll start with the less common forms in the statute. And, and they're less common because you'll really only see them with very specific facts. One type is called rehabilitative alimony, which prior to the Reform Act case law uh, had actually recognized a bit. Um, The idea of rehabilitative alimony is to support a spouse who is expected to become self-sufficient by a determined time. You know, whether that's completing some job training or education, um, or maybe the spouse was recently employed but isn't for some reason and and, uh, can become reemployed with reasonable efforts. Rehabilitative alimony can't be paid for more than five years um, unless you've got some compelling circumstances. You know, and again, because the idea is that we're expecting the spouse receiving the alimony to become self-supporting by uh, a set period of time. For shorter marriages, uh, which, which is less than five years, there's a type of alimony called transitional alimony. In certain short marriages, there may be circumstances where a spouse needs to uh, transition uh, out of the marriage and adjust their lifestyle uh, or perhaps relocate. Following the divorce. And that's what transitional alimony is for. And and with that, it it could also just be as simple as an award of alimony to cover uh, a spouse's moving expenses. It it could really be that limited. Uh, It can't last any longer than three years. And that period uh, for transitional alimony can't be extended for any reason. Uh, It's a very limited type of alimony. Reimbursement alimony, that's the third type of alimony. And this uh, is not really intended for support. And so, in that sense, it's not exactly the typical type of alimony that we think of. Rather, it tends to be a specific amount of compensation to a spouse who has contributed. To the financial resources or abilities of the other spouse. Uh, That could be financial contributions, but it also could be uh, non-economic contributions. And a classic example here might be, Howard, if I worked outside of the home to help support you getting through medical school, in that case, a court might look to compensate me in some way by awarding me reimbursement alimony since I worked to let you get this education and you've now got this great income because of that. Uh, Like transitional alimony, reimbursement alimony is only available for those shorter marriages that are less than five years. And it's very much, I think, geared towards younger couples who maybe are just starting out and we're married for a short period of time where it it isn't appropriate to tie them together uh, with a big alimony award for many years, but rather just a more specific award for what one spouse may have actually contributed uh, to the other spouse. The last type, the fourth type, is really what you tend to find in most cases. That's what we call general term alimony, and this is really just sort of the classic idea of alimony, which is a a payment to a former spouse who is uh, uh, dependent in some way. Um, And here's, you know, sort of your more classic examples where a spouse deferred a career to care for kids, or maybe both spouses work, but their incomes are very disparate. One of the Biggest changes in the Reform Act um, that I mentioned is that with general term alimony, there are now durational limits on how long a payor is obligated to pay. For a marriage of five years or less, alimony is limited to half the length of the marriage. For a marriage of five to ten years, the durational limit is limited to 60% of the length of the marriage. Hmm. For 10 to 15 years of marriage, it bumps up to 70%. For 15 to 20-year marriages, the limit's 80%. And then for marriages of over 20 years, alimony can continue really for an indefinite period. But the important thing to note here is that that despite these durational limits, We have to remember that there's still other events in the statute, um, like the ones that I mentioned, um, that could terminate alimony earlier. And that, again, might be a recipient remarries or a payor uh, hits Social Security retirement age, for instance. The statute does allow courts to have some discretion to exceed the durational limits under certain circumstances. But in those cases, the person looking to have that longer alimony duration really has a high burden of proving that there's a good reason for that uh, durational limit to be extended for that alimony.
0: So it sounds like, Tim, with these durational limits, and and so much of this, I'll bet most of our listeners had no idea about, you know, you hear alimony and you think, well, it's alimony, you know, all these different types. And Tim, it does sound like with these durational limits, you may have had potential payors suddenly running to the courthouse to get divorced before their marriages jumped up into the longer durations.
1: Uh, absolutely, um, the the and, and the Reform Act it defines length of the marriage for the purposes of these limits very specifically. It's from the date of the marriage to the date when a person is either served with or accepts uh, service on a complaint for divorce, and, and that that clear definitions good particularly because divorce cases can certainly drag out and linger in court and take years yes. uh, before you get technically unmarried right. um, but you're right yeah. right and i've had i've had this situation before where you know if you represent a potential alimony payor that comes into your office and and you know they've been married for 9 years and 11 months you most likely want to get that divorce complaint filed and served on the other spouse before that 10-year anniversary since that's the difference uh, potentially between, you know, your client paying alimony for 60% of the length of the marriage versus, versus 7 potentially. So absolutely.
0: Huh. So going back to the different types of alimony, Tim, and their duration, what do courts consider when deciding what type of alimony may be appropriate?
1: Uh, the Reform Act lays out factors that the court must consider in deciding the form of alimony as well as the amount and the duration. Um, they're very similar to the factors the courts considered. Uh, under the prior law and which still apply and and have to be considered in property division. Uh, One of the most important factors, if not the most important, is the length of the marriage. And, you know, like we talked about, some of the forms of alimony, they're only available in shorter marriages. Uh, In a longer marriage, you're much more likely to have an economic unit there in, in your couple, whether one of those spouses is dependent on the other. So in those cases, you're more likely to see the general term alimony. The statute does allow the court to consider a period where uh, spouses cohabitated together before the marriage in determining what the length of the marriage is. So, you know, in that respect, that that client with the nine-year, 11-month marriage, you, you know, he might... Be out of luck if him and his partner, you know, cohabitated for a long period prior to that actual marriage. That's right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Other factors uh, include the age of the parties. You know, are the spouses younger, with many working years ahead of them, or are they older? And has one spouse not? worked for a while, where it's it's unreasonable to think that that spouse has time to get back into the workforce and build a career. Uh, the health of the parties, the contributions of the parties, the spouse's um, employability when they're leaving the marriage, those are other factors. Marital lifestyle is another factor, and it can be a big factor, particularly in longer marriages. And it's the idea that, that neither spouse should uh, really have to suffer a drastic decrease in his or her lifestyle leaving the marriage. And again, you know, this is this is more of a longer marriage type issue. Um, so if it was a family who, you know, they drove nice cars and they took the fancy vacation, those types of lifestyle expenses are going to be taken in, into account for both spouses when the court's fashioning an alimony award. And again, these factors the court considers just ties back to what I first mentioned about the Alimony Act, which is that while, while we do get a lot of clear guidelines for alimony, these factors really allow the court to still have that discretion to consider the circumstances of each case and fashion alimony awards accordingly, which is intended to be and is a good thing in most cases.
0: So, Tim, when it comes to the actual dollar amount of alimony, does the Alimony Reform Act lay out any guidelines?
1: Yeah, sort of. The, the reform <laughs> – like, like anything in law, um, it's a sort of.
0: Right. It depends, uh, right? It depends,
1: <laughs> right. The, the, the Reform Act provides that alimony should not generally exceed the recipient's need or 30 to 35% of the difference between the spouse's incomes. And there's two exceptions to this. Um, these guidelines and those percent, I'll, I'll sort of call them percent limits, uh, don't apply to reimbursement alimony because like we talked about, that tends to be a, a very specific award for a specific reason, and usually in a specific amount. Uh, the The other exception is that a court might deviate from the amount of the guidelines if the court uh, finds that um, there's justification for that. And, you know, some of these situations might include one spouse having some unusual health circumstances, the cost of health insurance spouses might be paying sort of factors in. Uh, But generally, uh, the, the guidelines that the court follows are that it doesn't exceed the recipient's need for this 30 to 35%. For the purposes of counting income for support, uh, the law specifically excludes interest and dividend income someone has from assets that they get in the divorce. So that's sort of a specific piece of the law. Hmm. And also some big issues have, have come up. Um, since the Alimony Reform Act was passed regarding this language about the recipient's need or uh, the percentage differences. And one issue is this or language, that alimony shouldn't exceed the percentage ranges or need. You know, Well, which is it? Um, when, when the law first came out, some practitioners argued that this was more sort of like a menu where a judge could simply pick from when ordering alimony is sort of an either-or thing. Uh, What subsequent cases, though, have clarified really is what the law has has kind of always been, that despite the way it's worded, a spouse's needs should really be the principal uh, consideration and the driving consideration of an alimony award. And need isn't just things like food and housing, but it considers the lifestyle of the marriage, like we talked about earlier, too. Um, and, And so ultimately, this could result in an award much lower than those 30 to 35 percentage uh, ranges that are also in the statute. But if a spouse's needs are higher, the alimony is nevertheless limited to those percentage ratio ranges. So it's kind of, the way to think of it is, you know, needs first subject to that cap of 30 to 35%. And what the cases have really clarified is is that that the right to live a lifestyle that was uh, enjoyed during the marriage isn't absolute because of those percentage limits. And you know, if you if you've got somebody arguing, well, my needs are higher than than 35 would would will cover. I should get more. But then the spouse who's paying is probably also not able to meet every single lifestyle expense uh, that he or she was able to meet during the marriage so there's only mo- so much money to go around and those caps that 30 to 35 percent um, is sort of a fair way to balance the sacrifice that often comes when you've got one income uh, essentially now being divided between two people and two households right. uh, with an alimony award Right. Um, and the, the the second big issue that's come up with this language of these percentage ranges so you can sort of toss out everything I just said, uh, when I talked about 30 to 35% specifically, (laughs) um, is, is recent, recent tax law changes. Uh, The 30 to 35% was based off of a very specific tax treatment, uh, of alimony payments. That's now completely different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Tim, what were those tax law changes, and how do practitioners and courts deal with what seem to be outdated percentage guidelines for the amount of alimony?
1: Yeah, outdated is the, the perfect word. They are now. Um, <laughs> so, so, So for many, many years, alimony had this preferred tax treatment. A person paying alimony could deduct the alimony payments, from his or her income. And then in turn, the alimony payments were taxable to the person receiving them. And and what this does, and, and particularly when you have one spouse with minimal or no income, otherwise, it shifts the portion of the payor's income that is being paid as alimony out of their highest tax bracket and down to the lower tax bracket of the recipient. And so if you think of a divorced couple as a financial family unit still in some way, if, if, if there is an alimony order, the result is that the couple overall is paying less taxes and there's more money overall it's good for the payor because he or she gets the tax break on the alimony payments and it's also good for the recipient because that's more net dollars available for everyone and more net dollars available to pay alimony when when the alimony reform act was passed, uh, like I said, those those percentage ranges, thirty to thirty five percent, they they were specifically tailored to the fact that alimony had this particular tax treatment. Uh, Trump's tax overhaul, the tax cut and jobs act, completely changed this, and so now alimony is no longer deductible to the payer, and it's not taxable to the recipient. So this long time tax break that divorced couples who have an alimony order had is, is no longer. So for an alimony payer that would have to pay 30 to 35% of his or her gross income without that deduction of alimony you'd end up with people paying essentially over half of their net after tax income. It just doesn't work at huh. those numbers anymore. Right. The law still says 30 to 35%. There's been efforts to update it, but that hasn't been done and, and hasn't gone really anywhere up till this point. There are tax experts who have come up with equivalent percentages under the new tax law, and those ranges tend to be around 23 to 28%, but that's still not part of the statute. So now, Practitioners in any alimony case, you've got to run a tax analysis on people's income and potential alimony. And that was always something kind of good to do anyway, just to be sure of the numbers. But, but now you've got to almost show the court, what's the equivalent support percentage? You know, if 30% was appropriate under the old tax rules, that equates to 22% under the new tax rules uh, or something like that. It's about trying to get people to the same place or as close as we can um, with those changes in the tax rules.
0: Well, Tim, I want to thank you so much for walking us through the basics of alimony, but there's more. There's more, like they say on those late night TV commercials, (laughs) there's more. And we look forward to the, not that I watch late night TV or anything, but (laughs) and we look forward to the second part of this series on alimony. Do we get a preview, Tim?
1: So, so yeah, we have definitely just scratched the surface on alimony. And uh, I think in the second part, we'll dig deeper into uh, some of the nuanced provisions of the law in terms of what causes alimony to terminate, when that might happen, how alimony can be modified down the road if something changes after an initial ward. And I'll also want to talk a little bit about how we work out agreements uh, for alimony uh, outside of the court as, as part of a divorce.
0: Lots to think about. Thank you, Tim Brockler, family law attorney with Myrick O'Connell. If folks have questions or concerns about alimony, how can they contact you?
1: I can be contacted by phone, which is 617-391-2164. And email is also always great, which is T-B-R-A-U-G-H-L-E-R. And that's at MyrickO'Connell.com.
0: Tim Brockley, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Howard. I appreciate it.
0: I'm Howard Kaplan. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court.